Hi, I'd like to start things off by giving a hearty thanks to each and every one of you who have contributed to this month's fundraiser, Hope for the Day, which is a nonprofit movement empowering the conversation on proactive suicide prevention and mental health education. If you're listening to this on the day this episode airs, this is the last day to donate to Hope for a Day via KristaMakesADifference.com. But if you're tuning in anytime after the initial release date, you can always visit hftd.org to make a donation to this great organization. Now let's jump right into today's awesome episode. Hey everybody, this week's episode uh, features two guests, uh, brothers AJ Popoff and Jeremy Popoff, uh, lead vocalist and guitarist for the band Lit and... uh, uh, super stoked they picked uh, their mega smash hit, My Own Worst Enemy, to discuss today. And, um, you know, this was uh, such such a massive song for these guys uh, on their second record. And uh, it was just really refreshing to hear uh, how they're, they're, they're so excited to talk about it. They're, they're not jaded. Uh, they know that this song uh, has, uh, has given them a uh, <clears throat> over two decade uh, a career in the business. And that's, uh, that's very cool. Um, you know, we touched on how the song does not follow the typical verse, chorus, verse, chorus, uh, bridge, uh, outro chorus formula. Uh, and that's, that's really a testament to the song, uh, not needing it. This is just a little, uh, pop masterpiece, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, the song was just, it was just everywhere in, in 1999. You, you couldn't, uh, you couldn't escape it. If you were in an elevator at a restaurant and a movie theater on the radio, it was, uh, it was everywhere. And, uh, you know, I don't really get, uh, di- you know, get riff envy too much, but uh, definitely uh, something about this thing that I wish I wrote. For all that and much more, stay tuned. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? Krista makes a podcast. Hey, hey, have you heard? I uh, remember, gosh, it, it's funny, the older you get, and you guys could probably relate, uh, I don't know where the last 20 years went, but I remember this song when it came out uh, like yesterday, and uh, I kind of want to set it up here. Um, you know, your first uh, record, uh, As Lit, came out, and I say As Lit, because I know you guys had played uh, in, in bands together prior to Lit, but your first record came out in April of 1997 called Tripping the Light Fantastic, and uh I uh, had went back and listened to a couple songs from that record. I kind of wanted to get your vibe uh, compared to that in the major label debut. Um, when that record came out, it was only uh, two years later that uh, the single, My Own Burst Enemy, was released in March of 1999. Um, so take us back to the writing of My Own Worst Enemy. Was it during the touring cycle for Tripping the Light Fantastic, or were you done touring for that record, done playing shows, and you were in writing mode for the new record, and that's when it was spawned? Uh, I mean, some of it was written on tour for Tripping, um, and Enemy was one that was written post-first record tour when we were really in the in the... We had this warehouse in Anaheim that we used to basically hang out and jam in and you know all our gear was there and it was like a a man cave before that was a thing but it was basically our clubhouse and we just spent you know probably six hours a night most nights a week and um and we were just really gunning for um writing new new material not really even knowing that there was even going to be a record deal or a single you know well, that's what I was going to ask. So that, that's fascinating. So here you are writing for for another record, and I believe was it was the label RCA. Yeah, yeah. When did RCA come along in the process? Yeah, when did I mean? Shoot, we had a <clears throat> trip in like fantastic was actually. I'm, I'm getting kind of messed up on my timeline right now. I that <laughs> it was a well, long R- time ago. RCA <laughs> actually passed on us twice, yeah. and and so the third time. <laughs> the time that they said yes was the actually the third go around and uh it, it was the demo that the demo had my own worst enemy miserable four 
and another one, I think, I think maybe happy. Um, okay. Cause that, that's what I was going to ask. I was like, wait a second. So you got signed without, so they did hear some of these songs, at least in demo form. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they, okay. yeah. They, and they had heard others before too and had passed. And, um, so it was, it was an interesting time cause we, we were like, you know, we felt good about that batch of songs. We thought we were onto something and, and I say RCA passed. I mean, everybody passed. Everybody, uh-huh. every major label passed on my own worst enemy. Well, you know, what I loved about the song, you know, there was, looking back now, and I'm, I'm a little more uh, objective about it as the years have gone by, but, you know, the 90s, it was, it was a weird time, and I have nothing against uh, down tuning and, and <laughs> playing, you know, drop, drop D or anything, but, you know, the 90s was just, you know, all about that, and then here was this song at rock radio, alternative radio at the time, they called it, that came out, and it's just this major key of E rock song and i mean it just it definitely caught caught my attention you know and uh it was it was a kind of a breath of fresh air that's cool yeah it was a weird time it was there was a lot of the like you said like the, the tune down the the corns and the lip biscuits and the it was kind of like rap metal or rap rock was thriving but i think there was also it was like a time in music where it's i feel like it's kind of getting back to it a little bit where genres were just they were kind of all over the place and, and there was songs like, you know, our, our song was competing on the charts against Eminem and like fat boy slim. Um, and then not, you know, right around that same time, sugar Ray, I think every morning was, was, you know, in the top 10. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was amongst songs like, you know, uh, break stuff and, and, and what was it sure. you know, on the leash or whatever the other song was that corn had out at the time. So it was kind of a cool time for music, you know, where it was just a lot more, a lot of open minds and a lot of new, sounds you know coming out and um well no like i said when i when i it was it's one of those songs to me that was immediately catchy i heard it in the radio and i was just like oh this is different you know and it was it it really harkened me back to when i grew up i loved i loved 80s pop and 80s rock and i was like man i can i can grab a hold of this and i gotta ask jeremy right now i mean that riff that octave riff that 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 floats uh from e flat to e uh up up to the b to the a that uh the riff of the song i mean when did you come up with that do you remember i mean i remember the night that we um a lot of times stuff would just happen by accident in the, in that warehouse, that warehouse we had, man, what a magical place that ended up being. Um, even though we felt almost trapped in it at the time, um, <laughs> it, it, it was, uh, really a, a, a place of a lot of creativity, but I, I, you know, like most of the riffs on that record and, you know, even on tripping, it would just start out, I, you know, as I was kind of setting up my stuff or I would just start kind of jamming around and, um, and, you know, I think at the time we were listening to a lot of um, classic rock and I was really at the time trying to hone in on this simplicity thing. And, and you know, songs like um, um, like Just a Girl, Devo um, or like even um, Magic Man from Heart. You know, I was a big Swingers fan, the movie Swingers and right. that scene when they pull up to the chick's trailer and it plays that ding, 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 ding. And it's the Magic Man heart song, you know, and I, I just at the time was really I just remember being really into the simplicity of those riffs and um, and was, you know, trying to come up with simple but hooky riffs and melodies that rubbed a lot too so they were simple but there was a lot of rubbing going on you know oh oh man i'm so glad you said that i was just talking to my producer chris right before you guys got on about that you know and sometimes you got to be careful with who you say this to because it it, you know it could be looked at uh, i know you guys wouldn't think this but as an insult as a songwriter but you you said simple that I don't have riff envy too much, but man, I wish I wrote this riff. <laughs> it is so freaking good. It is so catchy. It's uh, it's just like the perfect riff. And 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 sometimes the most simple songs, the most simple riffs, are are what works, you know. And if you start throwing in that fourth or fifth chord, man, it 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 it, uh, it, it mud, muddies everything up. Well, well, not only that, you know, we we've recently. Um, have had discussions about this song. It, it was just recently certified double platinum. In, Congratulations in America. Thanks. Thank but the, I mean, we didn't really have anything to do with it. Um, the, the, the funny thing is, is that it, it's that double platinum status started 
tallying long after the song was a was a single or a, you know because it was never a single for sale you know you had to buy the whole record back in 99 if you liked enemy um but after the you know invention of digital downloads and and streams and all that kind of stuff that's when officially that clock started ticking on it going double platinum so it's kind of it's kind of crazy but since that happened we've been you know talking about it and i you know I think one of the weirdest things about that song is as a songwriter, we often really beat ourselves up and we're, and we really, you know, kind of, or beat our heads against the wall. And and sometimes it's hard, you know, and, but I think sometimes the hard part comes from knowing too much and overthinking it. And when you actually take a look at my own worst enemy, th- nothing rhymes. There's no pre-chorus. There's really not a solo and there's no bridge oh we're gonna get to all that in a second it's funny you say that because i got it all right here because that just breaks all the damn rules that we seem to follow as songwriters and then we look at that and we go well wait a minute it's the biggest song of our career (laughs) and like how do we do that how do we undo 20 years of learning how to do this i know yeah and that's what's fascinating about this song and like i said we'll get that we'll get there in a second i just want to kind of touch on going back now now aj do you remember hearing the riff and 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 was the song did you kind of have the whole song written jeremy or did you guys kind of jam it as a band aj had aj had scribbled down i'll let you tell the story aj about the lyric thing but the 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 riff and the the rhythm and kind of the vibe of the jam started. And then as we started to come up with the melodies and stuff, AJ had to scrap a paper that had um, a couple of lines written on it and it just started to work and it just fell together. And the verses sort of just fell out of our mouths right there on the spot. The whole song was written in probably I don't know, 20 minutes. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. It was a, I think it, it's crazy. I feel like this is always a story with, with someone's, biggest song it seems that it's it writes itself and we uh you know that night we it was like all the other nights we hung we we probably rehearsed three or four nights a week and just a lot of it was just hang time um you know drinking beer and just talking about what we were going to do but this uh that that song you know the riff came out and immediately turned into that groove and then immediately started you know i started singing the melodies like first melodies and just things over the top and um and at that, I just remember at the time we, we usually put sometimes lyrics f- would just come out like in a scat or whatever, just as we're riffing, but usually lyrics came last. We would just, we would hone in on, on the riff and on the melodies and get the song structured together. And then, you know, go back and find either cool titles or cool um, phrases or whatnot. And then, you know, usually it would be Jeremy and I would get together and kind of bang out, you know, the remainder of the lyrics together. Uh, but yeah, I had a, I had an old car with a broken fuel gauge and I had to constantly write down whenever I'd pump gas, how many gallons I was putting in. And, you know, <laughs> and then, so I knew that my car got about eight miles to the gallon. So I knew when I was going to run out of gas. So I just had that little pad of paper right next to me. So I knew it was up and, and I had jotted down while I was putting gas in one day. It's no surprise to me. I am my own worst enemy because every now and then I kicked the living shit out of me. And, and I was just like, you know, at first when you, when you hear the song, it's a, it's a, it's a sort of a poppy, um, uplifting sort of feel to, you know, and, and we're like, well, do we want to go down the road of, you know, regret in, in this whole, like, which could have been a darker song too. Um, sure. it, it just sort of worked with this feel and, and, uh, yeah, it's crazy, man. It's just crazy that we're still talking about the song this many years later. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, and it's 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 funny, you know, a lot of a lot of guests, uh, they always want to pick the, you know, and I I get it from the artist standpoint. I always want to talk about my new songs, but uh, it, it's glad that you, you know, I'm, I'm stoked you guys still embrace this because it's it's, uh, you know, it's what you built your career on, and and everybody knows this song, which leads me to the next. I just want to touch on something we were talking a moment ago about radio, um, and you can't believe everything you read on the internet, but uh, in, in in researching this, it's I don't know if this is true. Maybe you guys could shed light. It says the song peaked at number 51 on the Billboard Hot 100 after only being moderately, moderately successful at first. 51 seems awful uh, low on the charts because, I mean, this song was everywhere in 99. Do you guys know anything about that? Well, it was it was number one on rock radio for 11 weeks in a row. But pop radio, like the Hot 100, is, you know, okay. like, is top 40, basically. And we were 
I mean, not to pat ourselves on the back, but, and I, I should say RCA, we didn't, it was such a, 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 a summer smash, you know, was. across the formats, except pop radio, like New York Z100 was playing it, but Kiss FM in LA wouldn't play it because it was too hard and heavy. <laughs> and, um, and so we, you know, it only did, it only got up to like, it never cracked the top 40 at pop, but then six months later, you know, we sort of kicked the doors in and for bands like Blink and, and, and bands that came, you know, bands that had big pop rock hits actually on pop radio came probably three to six months after we had, you know, basically kicked their door down, you know, until they, until we just gave up. No, and you guys are really, you know, I, I have to t- tip of the hat to you on that one because think of the bands that, that really came after you. There was the, you know, some 41s, the American Hi-Fis, the, you know, t- tons of tons of bands that, uh, you know, were in that pop rock, uh, uh, pop punk type sound. And uh, prior to you guys, that was really, uh, again, it was the, the drop D, you know, Rage Against the Machines and, and that type of stuff. And uh, this was definitely, uh, to, to, you know, coin my phrase again, it was a breath of fresh air at radio, I felt. Um, so when you guys were putting, and I always ask my guests this and I want to know, did you, once the song was kind of coming together, you're in your practice uh, space, did, did it stick out to you compared to the other, other tunes or did you kind of love them all equally at that point? I think we, it was just one of the batch for us. I think, I mean, I speak for myself, but I think we all kind of agree that every record we've put out has sort of just captured you know, where we were as songwriters through the course of, you know, the year or the six months it took to write it or, you know, sometimes quicker, but, um, it's always, I think our stuff has always been a little all over the place. Cause we've just, our influences come from every direction. Having Jeremy and I having grown up on, um, you know, pop radio, our dad being a DJ, he, you know, at the time when he was a pop radio DJ, it was everything. It was from, you know, rock, Def Leppard to, um, Michael Jackson to, you know, it was just all over the place. So, you know, big songs were big songs and we were exposed to all that. And we were exposed to a lot of big band stuff because of our grandfather. So as far as anything standing out more than the other song it, to us, it was just, Oh, I mean, like one day we'll write something that sounds really right. heavy. And next day we'll write something, you know, that sounds like an eighties power ballad. So it, it didn't really, for me, stand out as like, Oh, this is the one, you know, we were actually a little bit self-conscious of, my own worst enemy in particular, because um, our buddy T Bone, who now he everyone knows him because he he runs the House of Blues in Anaheim, so everyone that's touring has probably come in contact with him. But at the time, he was just our you know we grew up together, and he was always with us, and he actually lived with me, and and he was kind of the the fifth member of the band. He just didn't play anything, but um, he didn't really like it, and so. <laughs> You know, so it was kind of weird because we had this song and we all kind of thought it was pretty cool, but T-Bone didn't really dig it. So we didn't play it a couple of shows and we just sort of, um, oh man. And and that's such a bum out when your bro doesn't like your tune, especially someone (laughs) that's that close to the band. Cause you're like, what do you mean you don't like it, man? Yeah. Like what's (laughs) wrong with it? It it was, um, and it was funny because then we played a show. There was a club in Fullerton called club three, six, nine. And it was kind of the Orange County. I mean, everyone from, I mean, Corn and 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 I mean, tons of bands played there. But for us and for Zebrahead and for um, like even System of a Down, it was kind of our our home stomping grounds. Um, and um, it was the the club held three hundred and sixty nine people. That's why they got that name. <laughs> but um, we uh, we played a show with Zebrahead one night and. Um, they had just gotten their deal and we were like bastards, man. Cause they had got, you know, we were, we were banging around for like 10 years and they were banging around for like two when they got their record deal. But, um, I would never forget like being in the office at the end of the night, like settling up, you know, getting paid our $300 or whatever it was. And, uh, and Justin and Ed from Zebrahead were like, dude, that new song you played, that's going to pay your mortgage one day. Like that's, that's insane. You know? And, and I just remember that, you know, that was back in like mid 98 and thinking like, oh, that'd be nice, huh? Oh, wow. <laughs> that is well, someone else saw through it. And, you know, I've never had a, a guest, at least so far on the podcast <clears throat> or a matter of fact, anybody I've talked to just about songwriting and other bands. And I've had this conversation a lot that's ever said, oh, yeah, we knew that was a smash. 
<laughs> we knew that was yeah. a hit. You know, we're, we're too close to our own stuff. I've never had a, a, a Less Than Jake song that I was like, that's definitely going to be a fan favorite. It just never happened. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're always really close to all your songs. You put at least most bands and most artists I know put put everything they can into, into each one of their songs. So um, that's really interesting that they that those guys heard that. And which brings me to my next uh, my next point. So. Um, at what point did you start shopping the demo and you said you were, you were still getting turned down by labels? Yeah, well, we had, we were pretty relentless. I mean, we were writing constantly playing shows constantly, LA, Orange County. Um, so we were at that stage and in, in, in 98, there was always a show coming up and always a new song in the, in the pipeline. And we were, and we were, you know, we had access to a couple of studios, so um, we, our manager also managed Steve Vai and he had this great studio in his house in Hollywood. And we, so we used that a few times and I think, um, you know, EMI was our publisher at the time and we had access to their studio in Hollywood. So we, we just like, we, once we were scraped up enough money to buy a reel of tape, you know, we would go in the studio and just lay down these songs and, um, our manager would just follow up with, you know, that she was never stopped shopping. You know, it was every time we would have a new couple songs recorded, she was sending them out to everybody. And the other thing too, is we were getting passed on by everybody, but everyone was at our shows because every show was sold out and it was a thing and everyone knew something was happening. Um, but like, you know, Interscope and, and, um, and Geffen and, and just all these different, I just remember seeing the same A&R guys at our shows time after time after time. And, you know, and they saw the, the, the crowds that were coming were no longer just our buddies. It was, you know, when you're, when you're yeah. selling at, when you're selling out five, 600 people, you know, uh, consistently the, I mean, you would think the common sense would be like, Hey, there might be something to this, but. Well, the cool uh, thing too, for, I think what was going on was in, you know, instead of our focus was so much on, writing songs and working out, working on our, our live show and all that stuff that I think where some bands maybe got so caught up in, Oh, we want to get signed. We want to get signed for us. It was, I guess our development deal, which where some bands were getting in development deals was just basically happening alongside of these labels coming out to shows and stuff. Whereas we were able to just focus so much on the live show and building our following that our plan all along was to just kind of try and outgrow where we were outgrow our town to an ex to this extent of, all right, now we need to expand because we can't sell out the venue any more than it's sold out. Now we need to branch out. And that's where labels, the timing worked out just right. Cause I don't think we were ready before then, you know, to really, you know, be kicked out of the nest, you know, or let our wings, you know, expand. And so we were we, timing wise, it just happened the way it was supposed to for us, I think. Yeah, you, but you you guys did the right thing. You know, you built up that regional following. You were consistently selling out, you know, all the places in your area. And at some point, the majors were going to have to pay attention, you know, because yeah. all those A&R dudes were hanging out at all, combing all the shows. And uh, there, there was definitely something hap happening there. Um, I, I'd like to get into to the lyrics uh, of this and kind of how you guys work together. I know that, that you know, uh, Jeremy, of course, you play guitar and, and, and you uh, wrote predominantly, uh, the bulk of this song and, and AJ, did you exclusively work on the lyrics or, or did, do you like, uh, uh, ask for the other band members input? Well, I mean, I don't, <clears throat> I don't play guitar. I mean, I started out as a drummer, so I play, I'm really like, for me, I was a drummer that sang background vocals and really wanted to be a front man. Um, but a songwriter at the same time. So I think for me, the, the, my strengths when it comes to songwriting has always been melody and lyrics. So I, you know, I don't, I don't come up with riffs, but I come up with riffs with my mouth with melody. You know what I mean? Like that to me sure. is my, my way of, you know, when I'm thinking of songs, I'm, I'm, you know, kind of almost percussively. I think Jeremy mentioned something about like, you know, we like to have melodies that rub and I'm, I've always made it a, you know, a point to sort of, if the rhythm of the of the guitar riff is going um, da 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 da, then I'm like I want to kind of go against it, like a little more of like a da 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 da. da kind of filling, you know, kind of filling fill in the holes. Totally. Yeah. Um, I got. But it. I remember, yeah. I remember we we both. I mean, AJ had had written out that those couple lines on that scrap of uh, 
gas paper, <laughs> gas <laughs> mileage paper. But then we just sort of, you know, we went back and forth and just kind of spit the words out. And it was very, in a weird way, yeah. almost looking back now, I mean, that was, you know, shit, that was 22 years ago. And, um, but I uh, just kind of looking, scanning through the lyrics, I feel almost like we, those were almost placeholder lyrics at the time. Because, oh, wow. You know, because realistically it was the, it was the lyrics that we never went back and fixed. And maybe that's a good thing, you know? <laughs> no, it goes back to that spontaneity thing where you just, you know, lightning in a bottle. It was written in 15, 20 minutes. Um, so, I want to talk about not only the lyrics we're going to get into, but the structure of the songs. We talked about that simplicity. And, and when I really picked the, got the guitar out this morning and I was going through this, I was like, oh my gosh, there's no bridge. Where's the bridge? So <laughs> the beginning of the tune, we got the, that iconic guitar intro. It goes through for two measures. Then the band kicks in for two. And then we're in the first verse. Can we forget about the things I said when I was drunk? Didn't mean to call you that. I can't remember what was said and what you threw at me. Um, is this autobiographical, AJ? Or is this something that was just a story that you were uh, kind of making up or, or, or set this one up? Yeah, I mean, the majority of our lyrics, I think in probably up until you know, a couple records later, we, we always sort of, they was, it was more storytelling, you know, and it's definitely something we were living and we still, we still do live you know, on, on certain, certain nights or days, um, things get out of hand. But I mean, that was just something that we felt like this is just things that we've experienced and our friends have experienced and have experienced. And it was, you know, just very simple, very to the point, filling up the melody with lyrics and, um, and just telling a story of what many mornings felt like, you know? <laughs> right. And, and, and then from there and, and yeah, anybody, male, female, young, old, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be relationship wise. You can relate to, to these three lines there, you know, didn't mean to call you that. I can't remember, I can't remember what was said and what you threw at me. <laughs> that could be yeah. your dad. <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing that nowadays, nowadays, all, all you have to do is just look at your, uh, you know, look at your text messages and see what you sent out, you know, or, or, or look at what you posted on your Instagram story and it, and, it, and it starts to piece everything back together. But, you know, 22 years ago, we used to have to call our buddies up and go, dude, yeah, what happened yeah. last night? Or how did I get home? Or, you kids have, you kids have no idea what it's like to black out without, without a smartphone. You don't know. And it's what they say is if you what, what you say when you're drunk, actually, you probably did mean to say it, right? <laughs> exactly. It's the truth serum. Um, so so now it gets into this is kind of like the pre-chorus. So please tell me, please tell me why. And then boom, it's into what is the chorus of the song, but this really isn't a chorus. It almost sounds like a pre-chorus, but at the same time, it's just so damn catchy. The car is in the front yard and I'm sleeping with my clothes on. <laughs> Came in through the window last night and you're gone. Um, and that's your chorus. And then it comes back into the reintro with the full band of that guitar riff again, um, before it hits the second verse. And, uh, so, so again, was, uh, was this just something you guys, uh, or AJ, you, you were living the cars in the front, you're sleeping with your clothes on, came through the window or uh, again, was this kind of like, um, a, a kind of a play on where your life was and seeing friends do it was, or was it, you know, still autobiographical or just kind of, kind of made up? Well, I mean, no, we, I mean, and you know, we wrote, like Jeremy was saying too, like we, we were kind of like bouncing lines off each other. And these are, I don't think either of us actually ever woke up and had the car in the front yard, but <laughs> Bet you we lived in, we lived in, I lived in a condo. So mine was, my car is in the parking space. Right. <laughs> um, and how the hell did it get there? <laughs> it's gotcha. all just, you know, it's just backtracking the events of, you know, why I woke up and I know I fucked up, but like mm -hmm. somebody please tell me what what exactly, why did I end up like this today? And why is my chick gone? And why? <laughs> like, well, and, and I, and I talked about the first chorus because really this song's interesting because you gives, it goes to verse two after the reintro and it's now you get the actual song title. It's no surprise to me. I am my own worst enemy because every now and again, I, I kick, I kick the living shit out of me, which is an, a great line. So descriptive, um, beating yourself up own worst enemy. Um, but, this verse is almost like a chorus of how anthemic it is. I mean, I'm sure you guys saw that at your shows when you launch into this verse in particular with that line, my own worst enemy and kick the living shit out of me that, that the whole crowd was singing it as loud as the, what, it, what I'm calling the chorus. Well, especially yeah. the next line, the still burning um, is the part that 
is the part that the crowd sings you know we we stop the music there and the crowd sings still burning please tell me why and it's the first time we tried that um was maybe woodstock and we didn't know what was going to happen we were like hey on that part let's go gun, gun, still burning, gun, gun. and we just tried it on tv in front of a worldwide audience and, the, and it and it was like it almost knocked us over it was so loud that is very cool we've that's been doing really- it we've been doing it ever since I have to go back and check out that YouTube clip. That's interesting. Um, and that line, uh, what I'm calling kind of the pre-chorus before it sets up for the cars in the front yard part. Um, the first time it's just, please tell me now it's still burning. It changes from, from that first, that first lyric, um, which is neat. And, uh, and again, I could see why that would be, be such a, a crowd favorite part. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the one-hit thunder or were nothing more than a one-hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh, and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods. Um, Goes into the second chorus. And then um, I have a question mark here. I kind of put bridge well kind of it's but it's just the re-intro <laughs> guitar part and the band riffing on that for another four measures before it comes back to to chorus three and it only says uh please tell me why once and then it goes into the cars in the front yard um and then you get uh another hook you get the ahoos that come in uh and uh <laughs> yeah. um that's uh and I want to talk about that in a moment in context of your producer. I have a question about that. Um, but then it goes. I think I know to, what you're going to ask. Right. <laughs> and the answer is yes. <laughs> then it goes in. <laughs> then it goes into what I call a post chorus, because this is kind of another verse, but it's still in the chorus vibe. You know, it's no surprise to me. I am my own worst enemy because every now and then I kick the living shit out of me. Can we forget about the things I said when I was drunk? I didn't mean to call you that. And then we have that guitar ent- uh, outro, which is the same as the other times in the song for four measures. And then it ends on the A chord. It never resolves in E. Um, and uh, again, for a for a song structure, when I broke this down this morning, I was like, wow. Going back to, <laughs> to Jeremy's point of like, you know, gosh, can we get back to writing a song like that? And it, it would, I don't know. It, it's almost impossible for me to think in, in terms of that, that simplistic. And I mean that with, with the highest regard. No, I mean it. It it it's a lost. Uh, we admit it constantly. I mean, we're we're as we write. You know, even this week, last week. You know, we're we're always like we stop ourselves sometimes and go, dude, we're overthinking this. Um, you know, and yeah, I mean, it's there is a, and we had you know we had been a band for ten years and we had put a record out and before that we had. I mean, we were we were definitely not. Um, we were, um, no, you know, beginners, but by any means, but at the same time, we're, we were just very lucky to have not subscribed to, we just didn't claim to know the answers of what we were doing. We just were, we were having fun doing it. We were writing stuff that we loved and we were selling out shows. And at the time that was like, that was awesome. And we had almost, you know, we'd almost sort of given up a little bit on the whole record company thing. And, and we were like, well, let's just keep, we're, it's going well right now. It's like, we're bigger than ever locally, at least. And we're writing songs that we think are better than ever. And that's all we can really, that's all we can really ask well, for and right that's, now. That's probably the best thing you guys could have done because, you know, at some point, you know, I've talked to bands about this and or, or read about it. I've read every rock biography there is out there where they just gave up. They just were like, this isn't going anywhere in their minds of getting signed and being on MTV and all that whole thing. And they get caught up in that. Whereas you guys were like, you know what? Look at what we're doing. And you guys, sounds like you were living in the moment. You're playing all these shows. You're playing with your friends. You got now people showing up to the show that just aren't your friends. 
Uh, and so, as I said earlier, someone was someone was bound to take notice. Um, going back to the original demo, you're in recording it. Um, it gets in the hands of RCA. You get signed. Um, you guys had chosen, uh, and I want to know, did the label or did you guys have have a say in this, in pro, uh, producer Don Gilmore? And Don Gilmore, uh, he has a, a pretty good resume here. Uh, good Charlotte, Lincoln Park, Sugar Ray, Avril Lavigne, Bullet for My Valentine, just to name a few. Um, how did Don come into the picture? I th- what it was, he had done Eve 6, right? So label mates of ours. Okay. Yeah, they had Eve 6, uh, uh, Inside Out was a huge hit in 98. And so... And RCA at the time was really not a great rock label. Um, other than Eve Six, they hadn't really had any success with rock. And so it was a little bit of a risk, I mean, a little bit of a gamble going with them. Um, but because they weren't a very seasoned rock label, they were like, we need a producer. Uh, I know a guy, Don Gilmore, he did Eve Six, and we have Eve Six, and they're a rock band. Right. And, you know, not to take anything away from Don, but yeah, he that was definitely a... a an arranged marriage because he was, you know, sort of in the, in the camp already. Now our next record to follow the atomic record, um, you know, we had, we had courted, um, guys like Dave Jordan and Bob rock and a couple other guys, but we have, we eventually called Don and, and, and felt the most comfortable with the idea of going with him. So we definitely chose him and picked him and leaned on him on the atomic record, but on place in the sun, we were just really, it was just like, Tell us where to be and press record. We're ready to go. You know? Right. <clears throat> yeah. Well, you know, in, in, in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the, the producer, you know, do you remember how much the song changed with Don? I mean, was the song pretty much how it was and he just basically got the sonics out of you guys and the performances out of you guys? Or did, you know, did, did he have anything to do with that ahu part? There's the question. No, <laughs> we, that was on the demo. The only thing different. Really? The only difference, and we actually are going to release the demo next year because um, we're we're um, there's talks of a documentary about the song, and one of the things probably going to dissect it. We'll probably actually have to have you be in the documentary now that you've. I would love helped. to, <laughs> <laughs> but um, the ahus were there. The repeating mel, you know, the repeating verse thing, all the little guitar jangly things. The only thing different was, and you're going to trip out on this, but the the first chorus didn't happen yet. It didn't happen until after the second verse. So after the first, please tell me, please tell me. It went back into that. And, you know, of course, major label land, they're like, Oh no, you can't do that. Good call. I think that, I think that's definitely needed the chorus right there. Yeah. Yeah. I like to shit on major labels as, as much as I can, but I think they, I think that was the right choice. Well, miserable too is one. That's the same thing that happened that, you know, miserable starts out with the intro, you know, that you make me come just with the guitar, me and AJ just by ourselves. Mm-hmm. That was actually flown in from the, after the solo. Interesting. And it's that same little breakdown part, and we flew it to the beginning because the song used to just start with. Bah, bah, bah. Oh yeah. So um, yeah, I mean, There's learning bit- production notes for sure. Right, and for those that don't remember, I meant to mention a bit ago. You know, it l- literally, Eve Six and you guys uh, kind of saved RCA. I mean, there was a joke in the '90s; it was a recording cemetery of America. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, there just it well, there was nothing happening. I mean, they were really a uh, a pop and dance label in the '80s. Uh, but uh, that that's really cool. And now, um, well, so Dave Don- Grohl told us one time that the reason that the Foo's signed with RCA was because they couldn't turn the radio on without hearing lit. That's and they, awesome. And, 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 you know, Bruce Floor was one of our A&R guys and he was the one courting them. So they were like, well, hell. Right. So now, of course, you guys have been, been, you know, trudging in the clubs for a while. You've been doing your thing. First record came out two years later, this record comes out. You're, you're playing Woodstock. I mean, what was that like? You guys had paid your dues. Uh, I mean, this song just blew up. Like I said, it was everywhere. And of course I, I going back on my notes, I'm reading about the billboard. Of course you guys mentioned modern rock radio. It had to be number one. Cause again, I was hearing this song everywhere. Um, I'm sure it was all happening at a breakneck speed, but can you take us back? What, what was that like? You couldn't, you couldn't walk into a mall or turn on the radio without hearing the, hearing the dang thing. It did. It moved really fast. Cause they were, you know, it was a machine that was, 
it's weird to see how fast, you know, a corp, the corporate world, like, like a major record company, how fast they can move when, when there's money to be made. And they, uh, I feel like we made the video for that song immediately as well. So like we were experiencing all those things from radio to MTV, um, exposure, like all that stuff was happening all at once. So for us, um, you know, when they talk about an overnight success, we were like the 10 year overnight success story. Cause it, it was, you know, we started cause it, cause we were getting so much play on MTV and video love that we started getting recognized fairly quickly because the video was funny and people were watching that too. So th- we didn't really, you know, in retrospect, I, and I, and I remind myself of this and I talk about it quite a bit to this day is like, I wish I can go back to, to that first like month or two when that was actually happening at top speed and really like just soak in every single like <laughs> hour of those days because yeah. man, I was just, we were just like, all right, here we go. Let's just, and we just kept looking forward and well, for those that and for those that don't know, I mean, you know, Less Than Jake has certainly had a a, a great career, but we, oh, we yeah. never we never had a single. We never had this type of thing. And I know at the height of our career, especially in England, uh, which was our, which is our biggest market per capita, how many strings and how many ways I was getting pulled at one point. But this is next level. So when you talk about going back, AJ, and trying to enjoy that moment, I don't even know if you really could. You got managers, you got labels, we got a video shoot, we got this show, you got to be on a talk show, late night with Letterman and, uh, you know, Woodstock. I mean, it, it, it had to have been happening at a blinding pace. Totally. I mean, it was moments like Woodstock that really, <clears throat> looking back, made it, made all these things so worth it. Because all the filler in between that you're talking about, getting pulled in all the different directions, I was, it made me miserable. I hated, you know, <laughs> I hated doing interviews. I hated doing late night television. I hated doing, you know, the schedule, the itineraries, all that kind of shit. It stressed me out. So I was always just a big, like, nervous wreck. So by the time we hit stage, that's when I would just be like, oh, fuck yeah, like, this is, this is worth it. Especially mm-hmm. when the, crowds were growing because of all the other things and you're like okay well we're doing all these other things because look what it's creating you know and but yeah man i i I don't miss all that in between stuff but i do miss um that excitement of watching those crowds for the first time you know and having a first amphitheater show or a first festival and all those things like i know you've experienced festivals and stuff too it's just nothing like those oh yeah no and uh but just to have that, and I've seen you guys, and in, in fact, we did the Warp Tour cruise together a couple of years ago, oh. and it's funny, you know, came came coming from the punk scene in the 90s, there was, you know, and a lot of that Warp Tour crowd was the skate and punk crowd, uh, but man, you know, back in the day, they probably wouldn't uh, admit to liking Lit because you guys were on the radio, but man, when you would, guys would bust into this song on this boat, I thought I thought that we were going to sink like the Titanic, the place went berserk. <laughs> Dude, Freaking, we, every damn person knew every lyric, you, you know. That's awesome. It was great. Oh, thanks, man. Thank it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was great to see, you know, and, uh, that's all about, that's everything about a hit song. It's like, it was entrenched in people's lives and going back again to, to 99, 2000, you could not escape this song. You couldn't. Yeah, it's wild. It's wild. And it's crazy too. When you, you talk about the warp tour, I mean, we, we, I don't want to say we insisted on it, but we, we were telling our agent at the time, cause we were getting all these big offers for, you know, these big tours and, all over the world and but we knew we had this hit that was happening and and we felt like hey man you know we didn't spend 10 years grinding this out in orange county playing in front of the toughest because you know you know uh, southern california is like the the arm the folded arm capital of the world and it's the they're the toughest crowds to win over of anywhere of anywhere and that was our you know that's where we learned our so but so anywhere we went east of california was like gravy because we you know it's like it's like training in 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 denver when it's you know 120 degrees outside you're like there's no oxygen and it's hot as shit so anywhere you go lower and cooler than that you're like oh this is easy but um we insisted on doing the warp tour we only think we only were able to do it for two and a half weeks because we were going on another tour but we felt like we had to prove to that community that like that was our community too and that we were really the epitome of do-it-yourselfers and you know um the ethic was was the same and it it was fun it was cool and fun that we did that but it was and looking back though i think we should have just like kept going bigger (laughs) right in the middle of a massive hit we're like we're gonna rough it 
in parking lots and we're going to trade beer for water and we're going to skip showers and we're just going to like live like prisoners. It was a great experience. I thought I mean, Warp Tour was some of the best times. Oh, yeah. Totally, but, totally. Yeah, I mean, career wise, it might it might have slowed us down a little bit. <laughs> no, yeah, and that's the thing, you know. Warp, Warp Tour has broke a lot of bands. Totally. You're you're not going to break out as a band and all of a sudden go on the Warp Tour because usually Kevin couldn't afford those bands at that point. You know, that was the that was the thing. Um, that year that we did it, Eminem was on it, and uh, that yeah, was that was crazy. that was not that was '99, and we we were on the whole thing that year. I remember you guys yeah. being out there. I remember that too. Yeah. Remember you guys, yeah. Dude, I remember, this is a funny story that, I don't know if you remember this, Chris, but they, what year, do you remember, I think it was 01, maybe, um, do you remember doing the weenie roast? And Was it 01? Or? It was 03, and I remember seeing you in the middle of the crowd, and I, yeah, actually, so, <laughs> I so, talked about you on the episode with Roger, because <laughs> I had my bass player Roger on, and, and we had a song uh, with the lyric, My Own Worst Enemy, in it, and uh, I remember saying something, I'm like, okay, here we are at, at the K-Rock Weenie Roast playing our song that K-Rock's playing, and I'm looking out, and you're the first person I see, and I'm like, well, yeah, we ripped off your lyric. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll never forget. I was, I, I, I think if I had anybody with me, it was like my, no, nah, I don't think I would have brought him because he was only, he was probably only two years old then, but I was, I was going through like, you know, my first midlife crisis. And I, you know, I just remember like, I think I went by myself for some reason. And you I was looked just like you were alone. It was in a sea of chairs. Cause we went on at like one thirty in the afternoon. You were yeah. probably about 50 yards out. In yeah, the man. Middle. And I was literally just trying to like go unnoticed and slip, <laughs> slip into the show, watch a couple bands, go say hi to a couple people and get out of there. And I just remember you go, Hey, check it out. It's the dude from lit. And I everyone, everyone, I'm like, God, oh, Damn it! I didn't know your name, but I saw your hair and I saw your beard and the rubber band. I'm like, you're you were you had an unmistakable look, and I'm like, there he is. <laughs> I was That's we funny. were a ball of nerves that day, man. There was so much hinging on K Rock at that point, as you know, and oh, yeah. uh, they gave us the parking lot slot, you know, as people were uh, filling in, and 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 there you are sitting there, and I'm I'm really really glad you remember that because I talked about it in the Roger episode. That's really funny. That's funny. <laughs> but uh uh guys, you know, I want to just say before we wrap up here that uh you know, your uh, uh candidness today and just the fact of how humble you guys are about the song and still cuz I know 22 years ago there's no way in hell you probably thought that you'd still be talking about this song uh in, in at the level you are today and uh you know, you appreciate what it's done for your career and it and it still puts uh still puts people in the building for you guys and and I think that's awesome. Thanks, dude. Yeah, we appreciate that. Appreciate yeah, you man. talking and about would, it. And I would love love to be in that documentary. Just give give me the uh, give me the call, and I'm I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before we wrap up, uh, I'd like you guys if there's anything you like to plug uh, uh, with lit solo projects, uh, anything uh, anything in between, go for it. I mean, obviously, social media is the best best way to you know check on what we're we're up to when we have you know lit band litband.com is our website where people that want to go get merch or uh, buy records and, and whatnot, that's the best place to do that. But Jeremy and I also have uh, Pop-Off Brothers uh, that we're going to be putting out more music in the future, in the near future probably. So that's something we'd like for people to check out. Um, it's more country-leaning. So if you if you hate country music, then you probably don't want to listen to it. <laughs> right yeah. on. Yeah, no, I remember talking, t- talking to you about that, uh, Jeremy, recently about, about that project. We kind of needed that outlet. And I mean, the last lit record that came out a couple of years ago was very country leaning. It was called These Are the Days. And as much as I love that record, I think it might have been confusing to the hardcore old lit fans and even, you know, hardcore country fans. And so um, we were like, you know, we're not going to stop writing these types of songs. But it, but if we do something separate from lit, then we can have another avenue to explore those things. But then in in doing that it's now kind of launched aj and i back into full-blown lit mode circa you know turn of the century and now we're uh, you know we're we're writing and demoing these songs that sound very fresh and 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 new but are very reminiscent of what we were doing in 99 2000 you know 2001 that era so we're we're excited i mean we're definitely there's definitely going to be a new lit record um, in 2021 and it will sound like an old record, but hopefully with some, you know, some fresh herbs and spices on there. 
Fantastic. Well, uh, <laughs> sounds good. Thank you guys for uh, for taking the time uh, today to be to be on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Appreciate you. Right dude. Hey, this is Dewey Halpas, host of Peer Pleasure on the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Join me each week as I explore another long form conversation with one of your favorite musicians, actors, comedians, or creatives. From Chino Moreno of the Deftones, John Gorley of Portugal, the man, to Fat Mike from NoFX, and Ian Mackay from Fugazi and Minor Threat, we go all over the map. From Fallout Boy to Slayer, Peer Pleasure has it all. Check us out now on Sound Talent Media. On. As we near the end of the show, here's a band you might not know. Welcome to this week's Band You Might Not Know. If you'd like your band to be considered on Krista Makes a Podcast, all you have to do is submit your song and bio to bandyoumightnotknow at gmail.com. This week's band is Lost in Society from Asbury Park, New Jersey. You can find their music on Spotify, and you can find them online at Instagram, Facebook, or go to lostinsociety.com. Here's a snippet of their track, We Want Change. Chris and Chris. Well, man, after uh, making this podcast with you for all these episodes now, uh, I think the main thing I'm taking away is I'm never spending more than 15 or 20 minutes on a song because if you spend any more, <laughs> any more than that, it's not going to be a hit. No, I know, right? Uh, and and I believe them. I I know of uh, less than Jake's songs that were written in you know ten fifteen minutes that uh, are fan favorites. There's, you really can't explain it. There's something uh, to be said about that spontaneity. Right. And, you know, it's funny, too, is they they mentioned it in the episode. And I know this is the fact uh, so many times is you have these things that you consider when you're writing them throwaway lyrics or placeholder lyrics that in the end, if they were the first things that came into your mind, 90 uh, percent of the time, it seems like those end up being the best things because they're just the things that flow the best. And, you know, you think, oh, I'm going to go back and I'm going to write these really profound lyrics or, or these. I'm going to write lyrics that haven't been sung before. And you know what? They don't sing as well. And uh, the, the thing that came natural to you is the thing that's going to naturally flow into people's brains and off their tongues. You know, uh, I can't tell you how many placeholder lyrics on demos ended up on Less Than Jake Records where yeah. you ended up writing a song around that. Right. Uh, because it just that that catchphrase or that line was just too good to throw away. You'd, as you said, you'd, you'd su- try to try substituting different words and it just didn't have the same mojo. Right. Dude, it was so. I loved, I loved uh, AJ's story about how he had a a notebook which was used to keep track of how much gas <laughs> was still in his gas tank, and that's what he wrote the lyrics on. I mean that that is my favorite story from this episode. Uh, that's so good because I don't know. Probably now there's some app on your phone that when your gas gauge doesn't work on your car, uh, and if that's not invented, Chris, we need to get that app made right yeah, now. Yeah, take, take it on, take it on Shark Tank. <laughs> yeah, a lot of us. There's still a lot of clunkers out there, so I'm. Sure sure that that would come in handy but uh that's really funny yeah no they were and i just i love the fact that these guys and i mentioned in the episode just how humble uh they are in in a sense about the song and they're they're still uh, excited to talk about it all these years later because you know they've been been hammered with this in interviews and, and of course the podcast uh the theme's a little different it's not really an interview you just were really dissecting and getting getting into the nuts and bolts of these hit singles and uh you know, they just uh, they had a really good enthusiasm about it. That was that was refreshing. And I think that they know that uh, the this song, uh, uh, as I said, keeps people coming in the building and uh, they, they have uh, legions of fans that, uh, that this song is uh, part of those memories, part of their lives. Yeah, this song's pretty undeniable because when it came out, um, you know, once again, being that that jaded little punk rock kid at the time, even, uh, you know, you, you kind of touched on this, that that they were on MTV, they were on the radio nonstop. And, and if you're a, uh, a punk rock kid, you might be like, nah, fuck that. I don't want to listen to that. That's on the radio and that's on MTV. But this song was undeniable. You couldn't, regardless of that, even, even being a snotty kid like I was at the time, uh, I couldn't deny that this song was great, you know? And that's, that's what's so cool is when you can transcend even like that, uh, punk rock attitude about it. it it's just, it's so good, man. That riff. Well, and people don't care about that. And we talked about this before. They don't care what labels you're on anymore. It was such a big thing in the nineties. And there was certainly a, uh, uh, you know, uh, thing 
uh, back in the day, you know, the Warped Tour had their had their niche, and you were punk rock and this and that. But uh, you know, the proof was in the pudding. Like I said, when I saw these guys on the Warped Tour cruise in the middle of the ocean when they launched into this song, everybody was singing every lyric. <laughs> it was right. just, it was undeniable. And it's like, ah, yeah, you were listening to this back in the day. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I'm on to you. It's pretty cool that there are songs that, like, you know the kids at the time could like and maybe their parents were hearing on the radio and they also liked it and just you know it 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 crosses that that boundary you know and and sometimes there's songs that are so they're so cool that they cross over you know and uh you know the 90s for me personally is like yeah i liked my uh fat rec bands and lookout records bands or whatever but it was cool that my mom and i both liked the gin blossoms and counting crows you know so like there it's it's cool that you you have those certain bands and artists uh that that transcend any sort of uh pretension or anything like that well yeah i mean there was a lot of stuff you know and i was kind of still and i was getting into in the late 90s i was you know getting into my late 20s so i wasn't you know had that punker kid attitude but still there wasn't a lot on the radio that i was gravitating towards and uh you know I, I distinctly remember uh this song uh coming on the radio and and i loved it i loved it and uh, i still do i think it's uh just one of those uh is you know it, it, there's nothing perfect in the world but as close as a perfect song can get this is a pretty pretty cool little pop masterpiece yeah it's pretty timeless sounding i will say that there's a lot of things you can look back on whether it's in our own bands or you can listen to other bands that sound dated uh and i know that this song definitely has the the tones and style of the time but i don't think the song itself sounds very dated like i think if this song came out now it could be just as popular no as it, it, was o- it only sounds dated because most people including myself and you we know when it was released it's dated from a calendar standpoint <laughs> right you know the production and everything else it's uh you know it could be a could be a current song and uh and that's testament to uh to hit songs and great songs that are, yeah. that are timeless and great songwriting man that's yeah. that's what it comes down to and that's what this podcast is all about it sure is. Uh, Chris, right now I'd like to take a moment to introduce a third Chris, as if we need another one, uh, into the mix here for the rap. Uh, this is Chris Miller, and uh, he was the big contributor uh, last month to ChrisToMakesADifference.com, uh, which was our fundraiser for Gilda's Club. We were running a, a little low on donations or so we thought for, uh, for that month, and uh, we put a post out there on the Facebook group. Anybody could help out. The biggest contributor would be uh, be able to get here uh, into the rap with us. And it uh, just so happens that I also know Mr. Chris Miller. Uh, Chris is uh, uh, from the Dallas, uh, Texas area. Known him for a long time through a mutual friend of ours. And uh, Chris, how how we doing tonight? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Chris. Well, thank you, thank you for being here. We we gave uh, Chris uh, uh, about a week, a uh, week and a half ago, gave him the uh, lit episode to listen to so that uh, we could talk about it here so uh glad glad to have you here and would just like to uh kind of know your 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 thoughts uh, w- what you thought was in- interesting about about this episode oh you know the greatest thing about this is is when when they were talking about the fact that they were jamming to classic rock in their studio space kicking a little heart you know the magic man you could definitely hear that influence in that riff and i love the fact that they've taken classic rock and they brought it you know 20 years into the future and now we're 20 years later listening to this again that's a great point you know i i loved lit when they first came out i think i even made mention of in the episode just due to the fact that they were a breath of fresh air that you could definitely tell they came from that 80s rock background it it was didn't sound like a lot of the late 90s stuff that was I don't know, for lack of a better word, a little a little more depressing. Uh, lit was oh, yeah. a little lit was a little uplifting and uh, w- was was just great. And I I loved the song from the from the minute uh, that I heard it. Do you remember? And and, and we're going back now to uh, to 1999. Do you remember the first time you heard the song? Or oh yeah, I, it, yeah, I definitely do. And it was it was so relatable to me. You know, when it came out, I think so many of us have had kind of that drunken night where you had to kind of think back and weren't quite (laughs) sure what happened, but you knew it was memorable. Um, And I think it just kind of transported me back to those memories of, uh, you know, doing things maybe I shouldn't have been doing, but uh, really enjoyed. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I, I always think I'm, I'm so thankful that cell phone cameras weren't around in the 90s. I would have been in deep oh. trouble. <laughs> oh, that would have been very, very bad. Very bad. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you uh, picked up on that, uh, you know, classic rock reference. Because, again, the this song uh, definitely has has all the com- those components. And, and I made mention that uh, the song, in, in some ways, anytime a, a song is just written from that... Uh, you know, I don't know, classic rock element. It, it's kind of timeless. I think the song you could hear it today if it was recorded by a uh, a new band of today, and it would it wouldn't sound dated. The only reason the song sounds dated is we know when it was released. Oh yeah, we've been listening to it for how many years, and it was everywhere, and uh, you couldn't get away from it, but not in a bad way. Yeah, and it was interesting when we uh, and, and again made mention of this in the episode we did the Warp Tour cruise with Lit a couple years ago, and uh, you know all, a lot of their songs, and they they had a number of, of of hits, but this was obviously the standout track when they would play this. We were on the on this cruise in the middle of the uh, you know Atlantic Ocean. When they would play this song, the boat would go berserk. Just that <laughs> opening riff would happen, and just it was it was really cool to witness. Just that just goes you to show you the uh, the star power, so to speak, of of having that enormous hit single. How it just translates uh, decades later. Yeah, I went back to the uh, the Woodstock clip, uh, you know, of, oh, of yeah. them doing the song live, and it was just crazy. The energy everything else it's it it makes all the work you guys put into this that much more worth it yeah that's cool that you brought that up i, I went back myself after uh, uh jeremy had, had uh, aj had shared that and watched that video and they talk about the part where the whole audience sings and it just you know the the hairs on your your, your neck stand up it's just one of those moments like wow you know that's oh uh, yeah it's killer that is so cool. Um, well, Chris, I just want to thank you so much for uh, your contribution uh, last month to Gilda's Club. You knocked us over our goal of what we wanted to uh, get for the month. Thank you so much for your for your generosity. And, uh, and, and dude, thank you for always being a friend. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. And uh, keep it up. We love it. Thank you so much. Hey, it's always good to get another Chris on the show. Uh, big thanks to Chris Miller. And also everyone else who has contributed to ChrisDemakesADifference.com. There's been a lot of people that have contributed and it's really awesome. And there's some some pretty generous givers such as Chris Miller and Chris Kellett and Dane Abbott and my good buddy Johnny at Sconish. These people have gone above and beyond and been really generous with their donations. But every, every donation is very generous. Whether you can just give a buck or whether you can give a hundred bucks, uh, ChrisDemakesADifference.com. Today is the last day for Hope for the Day. Uh, as you said, at the top of the podcast, Chris. That's right. So go to ChrisToMakesADifference.com if you can spare anything for Hope for the Day. And uh, after uh, this episode airs, anytime after November 30th, uh, 2020, uh, you can go straight to their site, HFTD.org, uh, and make a donation. And if you're listening to this episode after November 30th, if it's December of 2020, then the new organization that we are raising funds for at ChrisToMakesADifference.com is the Keep a Breast Foundation, which is focused on breast cancer prevention and education. And that is a great organization as well, Chris. Yeah, they're amazing. We've known the Keep a Breast folks less than Jake met them on the Warp Tour many years ago. Uh, my good friend Melanie Pierce, uh, I talked to her the other day and she uh, put me in touch with the people uh, uh, that could help us out with the with the fundraiser this month. So uh, again, Keep a Breast uh, Foundation will be our fundraiser for the month of December. And speaking of the month of December, Chris, tons of stuff coming up. I'm going to be brief about this because uh, I don't want to get too long winded, but I'm playing some solo shows at the end of the month. Playing some shows. Whoa. That's right. I'm playing some solo shows. I, I usually do my uh, usual three or four a year. Boy, I'm really, really taking it up a notch. Uh, but uh, three three shows again uh, in 2020. These are all outdoor shows down in Florida. Uh, they're going to be outdoors. Everyone will be spread apart. Uh, Christmas night, I'll be in Punta Gorda uh, at the Celtic Ray. It's a 21, up, uh, uh, 21 plus up show. And by the way, all of these shows are free. There is no charge to come see me play with my good friend JT Turret uh, on December 26th. Uh, this show starts at 9 p.m., 21 plus. This is at Guanabana's in Jupiter, Florida. And on Sunday, the 27th, it is a late matinee show starting at 4 p.m. at the Tide House in Stewart, Florida. These are all free of charge. Uh, we hope to see you there. Uh, got a book coming out on the 8th of this month called Blast from the Past. You can find that at ChrisDemakesABook.com as well as the new Less Than Jake album three days later. Silver Linings comes out on Friday, December 11th and the Less Than Jake live stream. We're going to be performing live to kick off our record that night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can go to LessThanJake.com for tickets. 
Man, you're going to be spreading all the holiday cheer. I hope so. I'm, I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying my best, Chris. I, I like to, you know, December's a fun month. I want to be festive, and you know, thanks to uh, each and every one of you for tuning in this week. Thanks to all our contributors, and we will see you next week. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now at Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts. Bowie, Dylan, Marley, you've heard the names and maybe you've heard their songs, but what about the stories behind the records that made titans of music like these so universally loved and important? Join me, Josh Adam Myers, host of The 500, as each week I go through a different album from Rolling Stone Magazine's 500 Greatest Albums list from 2012 with an incredible lineup of comedians, actors, and musicians talking about how the music has impacted their lives. New episodes of The 500 come out every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts.